This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks this is your official star trek book and comic show here on trek fm and i'm bruce gibson one of your hosts but it takes two to tango in the literary world so he's with me as he always is doing the tango Dan Gunther. Oh my. <laughs> uh, yes, I am here. Um, tangoing apparently. Uh, how are you doing, Bruce? <laughs> well, since it does take two to tango, it's, 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 I, I'd rather tango with you, Dan, than anyone else here at Trek. Aww. At I'm, I'm very flattered. Thank you for saying so. I, I agree with, because I, I agree with that sentiment completely. <laughs> <laughs> because I know when we tango, we would be reading Star Trek books at the same time. It's it's tricky, but it is possible. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we have a new cover to review. Excellent. I don't. Should we sing I, about that? We have a cover. I, I don't know. Ju- we're judging a book, but no, nah, no, no. It's just it's not the same no. without Matt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. It, it, you're right. We will we will judge the book without singing. So the book cover is Star Trek Deep Space Nine Original Sin by David R. George III. And also with the subtitle Gamma, which is interesting. Gamma. That is very interesting to me. So Star Trek Next Generation, I'm sorry, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Gamma. Now that tells me that we're getting a series of books called Gamma. It's possible. I mean... There could be more coming up in kind of like a mini series or a sub series of Deep Space Nine uh, because this book has to do and we'll get to the blurb in a second. It has to do with the voyages of the USS Robinson under the command of Captain Sisko exploring the Gamma Quadrant. So, yeah, wouldn't that be cool to get kind of a little mini series of books dealing with that extended mission? I think that might be the plan. We haven't officially heard anything about it i haven't really heard talk about the gamma subtitle from really anybody mm-hmm. yeah um, it kind of I uh, just, hear... just popped up with this cover i hadn't heard that that would be the case until we saw the cover right and the cover speaking of has a galaxy class ship which is the robinson and it's kind of I guess on its side, like it's moving vertically down on the cover. 
uh, and it looks like it's being worked on. There's like some maybe a little repair shuttle pods of some type around it. Is that what it looks like to you? Or maybe it's being invaded by something. Yeah, I'm know. wondering if they're maybe little alien objects of some kind. Because if you look, the ship is totally powered down, right? None of the lights are on. The warp engines are down. The deflector dish isn't glowing. And also something that makes the cover look really plain, but I'm wondering if there's a, a reason for this. There's no stars or, or any kind of spacescape in the background. It looks like they're kind of in this black void. So I'm kind of wondering what's yeah. going on there. I think we need to read the blurb because I think it's going to highlight exactly what we're looking at here. At the end of 2385, in a significant shift of its goals from military back to exploratory, Starfleet sent Captain Benjamin Sisko and the crew of the USS Robinson on an extended mission into the Gamma Quadrant. Tasked with a years-long assignment to travel unknown regions, they set out to fulfill the heart of Starfleet's charter, to explore strange new worlds, and to seek out new life and new civilizations. But now, three months into the mission, their first contact with an alien species comes in the form of an unprovoked attack on the Robinson. With the ship's crew suddenly incapacitated, 78 of the 1300 aboard are abducted, including Sisko's daughter, Rebecca. But Rebecca had already been kidnapped years earlier by a Bajoran religious zealot, part of a sect believing that her birth fulfilled the prophecy of the arrival of the infant Avatar. Does her disappearance now have anything to do with the harrowing events of the past? And for what purposes have these enemies taken Sisko's daughter and the rest of the missing? Mm. So it is under attack. It does seem that way. And 1,300 crewmen are abducted. We know this is a Galaxy-class ship with 1,300 crew people that are now missing. So he's got a full big crew on this mm -hmm. ship. And 78 now, of them have been abducted, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's right. 78 of the 1300. So this is interesting. I was hoping we would get a USS Robinson book with Captain Sisko on it because we knew that he'd been assigned to this starship. And I, I was just curious to see how a book would play out having Sisko as a captain of a starship. I don't know if that's been my lifelong dream to see Cisco <laughs> commanding a ship. <laughs> I always like seeing him on the space station in Deep Space Nine and being with the crew there. But I am curious to see how this plays out and introduce ourselves to a new crew that he has to deal with. And we've we've seen some of this in, in some previous books, but not a book just dedicated to it. So Dan, do you think is this something that you've been wanting to see? Or is this something like, yeah, I don't know. I could care less. Just bring Cisco back to the station. <laughs> I am curious to see how this plays out. I think, uh, you know, putting characters in different situations is always interesting. And of course, Cisco was his most badass when he was in command of the Defiant. So, you know, it's it's a different type of ship, though. You know, I, I'm assuming if it's like Galaxy-class ships of the past, there'll be a lot of civilians on board civilian scientists and possibly even families. Um, so to see Cisco in that role as, you know, a head of that kind of community, not sitting in one place and dealing with those issues, but traveling through space and, you know, seeking out new life and new civilizations, it could be really interesting to kind of see where that story takes him. I'd like to see maybe a couple books two or three books like this but then have him come back to the station he could still be on the robinson but have him back at deep space nine in some kind of 
interaction or role of some sort. But I am curious to see, one, him being captain of a starship, and two, I've been wanting to see more exploration of the Gamma mm-hmm. Quadrant. So that's what I'm really excited about, too. So it should be interesting. Um, I'm just trying to picture him on a bridge that looks like the lobby of a Marriott. <laughs> exactly. That's hard. It's hard to imagine. It's a little <laughs> tough, you know. Just, um, Deep Space Nine tonally has always been a little darker, a little bit more... Uh, I don't want to say realistic because that feels like I'm demeaning the next generation, but you know, it's always had that kind of darker edge to it. And even just physically the station and those spaces had kind of a darker look to them, a more uh, lived in feel. So it, it's, it is kind of weird mentally to put Cisco on the bridge of the enterprise D or a ship that's, you know, a sister ship of, of the enterprise D it's uh, yeah, it's a different look for sure. And I just wonder if he has his baseball with oh, him. Oh, he's got it. <laughs> They're in his ready room. <laughs> Card had a fish. Cisco's got his baseball. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, this book comes out on September 26th of this year, 2017. And it's 384 pages. And it'll be out in paperback and in ebook. So whatever your format preference is, it's available. So get that book when it comes out. Pre-order today, because I've seen it's on Amazon and other sites. So check it out. Our next news item, we have two new Kelvin Timeline books. Now, don't get excited, everyone. These aren't novels. I know we haven't had Kelvin Timeline novels yet, but those still aren't coming. These are art books which is just as exciting. So they're coming out this fall from Titan Books, and the first one is called Star Trek Beyond, The Makeup Artistry of Joel Harlow. Now, Joel Harlow is the guy that did a lot of the, um, well, I'll just read it right here. It features pencil sketches, stunning concept art, and beautiful photography. This is a visually arresting book that gives fans a unique, in-depth look into the remarkable work that went into this immensely popular movie. So he, on the cover, we see one of the aliens. If you remember, Star Trek Beyond came out on the 50th anniversary and featured 50 new aliens. And we see one of the aliens on the cover. So I guess we're going to see all the different makeup that he did for these 50 aliens and, may, and maybe even more. I, I don't know what else, you know, there, there may be other... Uh, just our regular crew seeing the makeup job that he did on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this looks really cool. And, you know, we should definitely add Academy Award nominated makeup work for Star Trek Beyond. Did not win, unfortunately. Uh, I think it should have. Yeah, Suicide Squad, yeah, right? I mean, like if you just look at the won. cover of this book and the alien woman that it shows is, if you remember Star Trek Beyond at the end, Chekhov was kind of making a play on this alien woman and and this is this is her and just this incredible gorgeous headpiece she's got and and full body makeup kind of thing just incredible work that i mean i'm not a hollywood insider i don't know exactly what the academy looks for and all that kind of stuff but man the makeup work on that movie i think it should have won personally but you know Regardless, we get a look at all of the incredible work that went into making these fantastic alien creations. 
Well, and the movie goes so fast when we're on the Yorktown and we're seeing all these different aliens in the background. A lot of them you're not getting a real close-up look mm-hmm. at. This book would actually give us the opportunity to get a close-up look. I, I don't know if every alien is featured in here, all 50. It doesn't mention that. But I'm assuming that we'll see a majority of, if not all, of his work that he did for the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think it would really be fun, too... And I'm not, I don't know, I don't think this would be in the book, but it would be really interesting if we were given names of all the aliens and, and where they're from and some of their background. There is an author uh, to this book named uh, Joe Nazaro. Uh, but again, I think it's just going to be talking more about the makeup and not, you know, oh, and this alien is from this planet and and they came to the Alpha Quadrant 5,000 years ago. I mean, I don't think we're going to get any background to this species, but it is a 256-page hardcover coming out two days. Now, wait, let me see if I get this right, Dan. I know it comes out two days before my birthday, but I think it comes out two days after You are absolutely correct. Yep. So, uh, you know, if, if someone were to buy me this book for my birthday, it would have to be a late birthday gift. But, you know is a really good idea if you're shopping for Bruce Gibson. <laughs> you could get him a gift on time. <laughs> and uh, if you make it this book, it'd be a really cool gift too. So, I'm going to tell you honestly, uh, yeah, nobody get me this book because, <laughs> I, because and it, yeah, it comes out October 3rd. My birthday is October 5th. It seems like every time a book is coming out, it always comes out the week after my birthday. Because <laughs> my wife always says to me, are there any books coming out that you want? I'm like, yeah, but it's not coming out until the 11th or whatever. It's always a week or so later. And I never feel like there's a book that's coming. And, and then any book that comes out before that, like a week or two, I've already, I'm already buying. I'm not going to wait two weeks, you know? <laughs> yeah. So this is one that I'm going to say, yeah, for my birthday, this one. It comes out two days before. So... Definitely. So this is one to check out. Another book that's coming out is The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline. And this covers the creation of Star Trek 09, Into Darkness, and beyond. So this is all the never-before-seen concept, art, and design that went into these films. And it also includes interviews with key creatives who helped bring these exciting movies to life on the big screen. This comes out November 7th. Author is Jeff Bond, and I'm really excited about this too because it's not just about the makeup. This is this is all the different art and design that went into all three movies, and it really is exciting mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, as as one of those Star Trek fans that loves the intricate details behind, you know, prop design and costume design and and ships and all that stuff. Like this behind the scenes stuff is always really really exciting to me and. Yeah, this this looks like a really cool book and it's really great to be getting some of that behind the scenes stuff that I feel like we haven't really seen a lot of lately. You know, there was always kind of behind the scenes of Star Trek First Contact and all those kind of things that you saw popping up all the time. But lately, yeah, it seems there's been a little bit of a drought of that stuff. So to finally kind of get this, ah, it's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. I would like Bad Robot to do a book that is an encyclopedia of the Kelvin timeline. And it's kind of like an in-universe thing, like the Akudas did for all of Star Trek. And I know they included uh, Into Darkness and 09 in theirs, but I mean, one encyclopedia where they're just, there's like so much in-universe information. And I went behind the scenes stuff too, 
But I would like something in universe two that maybe gives us more background on things that we didn't get in the movies that maybe they had in mind when they were making the movies like, oh, well, this is kind of the background of what Sulu was doing before the first movie and what Chekhov and so on. So, mm-hmm. you know, that I would love to read sometime, but that's not what's coming out right now. So <laughs> dreams are one thing. I'm very happy with these two books. So again, real quick, Star Trek Beyond, The Makeup Artistry of Joel Harlow comes out October 3rd. And then a month later, November 7th, we get The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline. Very cool. Definitely looking forward to seeing those on the shelf. Well, you know what else you'll see on the shelf this year? You will see coloring books from Dark Horse. And these are Star Trek coloring books. So last December, they had two volume of coloring books one for the original series and one for the next generation. And those proved to be very successful. So that was in 2016. So for this year in 2017, Dark Horse has announced that they're doing two more volumes, an original series volume two called Where No Man Has Gone Before and a next generation volume two called Continuing Missions. And I've, I've never bought an adult coloring book But I put an example in our notes here for us to look at of one of the uh, first volumes. And I mean, it's really taking scenes from the original series with a lot of detail. And I can see that it would take a lot of time to color in these pages. Yeah, like you, I've, I've never bought an adult coloring book. I've never, you know, done that sort of thing. But looking at these sample pages here and, and every time I see one of these and, and kind of flip through it, the Star Trek ones. I kind of have this weird desire to just like sit down with pencil crayons and color it all because yeah, it's gorgeous. It looks like it would be a lot of fun. And I do have to admit every time I see them in the store, I am briefly tempted to pick them up, but you know, I don't have enough time to do the stuff that I already do. (laughs) I couldn't fit coloring in, but uh, you know, for those out there who enjoy adult coloring books, these these look incredible like the level of detail is just gorgeous i think these would be a lot of fun if you're into that yeah i the i think uh i agree i think this is something that if you're a star trek fan and you like to color but yeah i mean if you ever get these and you color them you know share some of your uh artwork in the babel conference on facebook uh with everyone so we can all see them i think it would be yeah great. absolutely anybody who picked up last year's as well if you have any uh any lying around that you've done some coloring in we'd love to see that that'd be that that's a great idea i'd love to see that well you know and when they make comic books it's the same thing someone draws the art and then someone colors it in you have your penciler and you have your color artist which leads me into the fact we have two comic books to review today wow you are getting really good at the segues <laughs> <laughs> I've learned from Mark Herlerman at Star Wars Report. He does this stuff all the time with me. (laughs) (laughs) So our first uh, comic book that came out recently is Star Trek New Visions number 16, Time Out of Joint. And that's time, space, out of joint. It's not time out as one word. So time out of joint, which really kind of threw me for a loop i was like is this i hope this has nothing to do with like illegal drugs or anything because <laughs> i was like <laughs> okay yeah, whatever i think you're but the anyway. only one who went there <laughs> <laughs> so anyway we've got this cover that features a weird alien up in one corner and we see finnegan from the episode shore leave and 
we see Rand, and she's wearing a blue uniform, and Spock's in fire, and there's McCoy, and Kirk just looks all distressed. There, it looks like this book's going to have a lot going on, because even the Enterprise looks like it's getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one, I have to say, I think, thinking back through the New Vision comics, I think this is probably the first one where I can say, after having read it, I really liked that. I really enjoyed the story. I thought it was really good. It still has a lot of the drawbacks that I think this whole series has. For example, when there's new aliens or new strange settings, it looks off and it looks a little bit cartoony and weird. But there's not a lot of that in this one until you get towards the end. And the story itself, like I found myself flipping through wanting to know what was happening next. And I love the kind of So what's happening is the Enterprise is under attack and we kind of don't really know a lot about what's going on. And Kirk is in an accident in engineering and then begins kind of randomly jumping through time forward and back to the middle of the battle, to days before the battle, to, you know, even months earlier on a totally different mission and even back to the Academy. And it's it's a really interesting story, at least the first two thirds really had my attention i think it for me lost a little bit towards the end it got a little bit like okay now i guess we got to wrap it up but that's kind of a little bit par for the course with weird star trek premises if that makes sense i'm kind of right there with you and just for some listeners who aren't that familiar with new visions just to remind you or if you didn't know this is this comic isn't done uh in traditional comic style of art, you know drawing and coloring like we were talking about earlier these are actual photos from the series that are manipulated to to look like new scenes from the series like they just pulled the film out and put it into a comic book so it's a photo novel in a sense a photo comic but you're right i when the story was going on and kirk's experiencing all of these different time changes all of a sudden he walks through a door and he's slightly in the future then he walks through another door and he's slightly in the past and he's kind of going through all that i was a little interested i i was getting more interested in it and and the reading started to go faster and faster for me because I knew what was going on and I just wanted to see where he was going to next and going to next. And as we saw, as we saw Finnegan on the cover, we see Finnegan in here who he fought with and got picked on and bullied on with from the Academy, Starfleet Academy back in the day. Uh, So we see that. So then we see his former flame Janet from the deadly years in another scene uh, showing where they were in the past back in the days before he had the enterprise, which is kind of funny. She's like, Jim, I really need to talk to you about something important. He goes, I don't have time for this. I got to go. <laughs> he goes through a door. Cause every time he went through a door, he would jump through time. And this time it wasn't working, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, that was pretty funny. The one thing that that scene in particular made me think of was like when Kirk time jumps to these different times, is he, is what he does permanently affecting the timeline going forward and that kind of thing. And it's something the story doesn't really address. Like does the, the quantum leaping Kirk for lack of a better term, is that really how that interaction with Janice went way back when now, or did that not, was it, is it like all good things where once it's all resolved, that's not what actually happened. And and history as we know it is normal, or did it make such a little effect that, it doesn't really matter, you know. Th- that's just kind of the nerd brain yeah. in me going like, ooh, 
but what about, you know? <laughs> because in the first part of the book, when he would walk through a door, if he, it seemed to be that if he was going to the bridge and he walked on the bridge, he was in a different time on the bridge. Mm-hmm. And then if he left the bridge, he got in the turbo, turbo lift, and then went to sickbay, all of a sudden he's entered a different time in sickbay. So it seemed that physically he was staying in the same places, but just in different times. Then all of a sudden we see, well, now he's not even just changing time, he's changing locations. Mm-hmm. There did seem to be kind of so, an escalation as it went on. Yeah, and and you're right. It's like, was what was he going into these different times and affecting them in any way or i'm going to assume when we get to the end of the book that what was going on got got wiped out of the timeline Mm -hmm. i I don't know yeah i mean (laughs) we need christopher bennett on to talk about you know the department of temporal investigations and and how they classify various temporal incursions but i think yeah you're right this is probably one of those times that they eliminated the original cause of the time travel so everything reset is my guess (laughs) i guess i don't know the and then the other thing i only had an issue with was about the whole idea of moving this planet i didn't really i kind of got why but i thought it seemed a little Mm -hmm. yeah it was a it was an odd um solution to the problem and then it also made me think like if you can dig a hole that deep with phasers and plant explosions and blow something up big enough to move a small planet, why the heck did they have such a hard time moving asteroids in, you know, the episode, for example, like the paradise syndrome where they had a few months for that asteroid to deflect it. Why couldn't they have just done this? It seems like it would have been less mass. I don't, I don't know. I have an answer to that. I actually have two theories on that. One because in this comic, Kirk is jumping the timeline, so he was able to go into the phaser banks and redo them differently with a future technology he saw in, in a future time. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> or this this story takes place years after the episode that you're talking about, and maybe they've developed better phaser technology on their own. I, that Yeah. So anyway... That's the comic. <laughs> I, I I enjoyed it, though. I mean, yeah, there was little things like that. I'm like, like oh, I don't know. But overall, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. One thing I do want to comment on that I thought was a fun part was Kirk realizes he's in the future at one point because he sees Janice Rand aboard the ship in a blue science uniform and she hadn't returned to the ship yet. So I thought that was pretty cool that that was, you know, how he was able to figure out he was in the future. What I was thinking... As I was reading the comic, and I thought maybe they would do that, John Byrne would do this, but he didn't, would be to have Kirk appear and like everyone around him is wearing the monster maroon uniforms from the movies or something like that. He'd be like, what is going on? Scotty, you look so old. What's with the mustache? You know, like I I thought that would have been kind of cool, but I don't know. They didn't go there. Oh, well, but uh, that would have been cool. Been I wonder if they even have the rights to use any of the images from the movies. I don't know. I would assume so. Um, IDW should, I would think. But yeah, in this format, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Well, let's move on because we have yet another comic. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. So we have Star Trek Boldly Go number nine. And this takes place in the Kelvin timeline. 
And I'm going to say right off the bat that I really enjoyed this Mm -hmm. one. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I really liked it too. There was a lot about it that was very charming. I really liked the interactions between Spock and Uhura as they kind of try to decipher Sarek's cryptic hints that maybe they should get married. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) But, uh, and the, but it definitely brought up the topic for them to discuss. Should we, or should we not get married? So, I mean, who, who would ever thought that Star Trek fans like us would be talking about Star Trek, Spock and Yahora wanting to get married. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the, you know, one of the covers for this issue is, very obviously and like that's where my mind went immediately was it looked like spock and uhura as a bride and groom with you know spock's family surrounding him kind of thing and i thought oh do they and then i realized no they're not they're not going to marry spock and uhura in a comic but you know for a second i kind of thought hey is are they getting married in this and then okay no never mind that they they won't do that but they definitely talk about it and you know, it's on their minds for sure. Yeah, they. it's not written off as uh, something that's not a possibility. We could see them get married. It, it doesn't It doesn't conclude with, uh, this will never happen. There's no way I'm going to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny, the exchanges that they're having. And also at the same time, it's exploring what's going on on New Vulcan, mm-hmm. which... I'm also finding very interesting and I'd like to see more stories like this because now that their planet was destroyed in Star Trek 09 by Nero and they're starting all over again on new Vulcan, I'd love to see all the, all the things that they have to go through as a society to keep themselves together and to establish new colonies on, on the planet and discover uh, new things about the planet that they have to deal with and, also, just 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 getting Vulcan back to being Vulcan again with what few people they have left. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Yohor is there and she's going to help work at the Science Academy and teach Earth history to the children there. And so we see some of that. So that's a unique perspective to see her doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really I, I love this because it feels more like a character piece than most of the comics we get, you know, there's not a lot of action. There's kind of this mystery that has to be solved, but it's not, you know, there's nobody's firing phasers and there's no space battles or anything like that. It's, it's a more, more of a quiet story. And the main story that I I really like, and I'm not going to give away everything, but the main story made me think a lot about, you know, there's debates in the scientific community for, for example, if we're uh, burying nuclear waste from from nuclear reactors or something like that, how will you communicate to future civilizations, you know, possibly tens of thousands of years in the future that, you know, don't go digging this stuff up, don't go looking for this, don't, it's too dangerous. And the main story focuses on that, putting the people of new Vulcan in the role of that future civilization that might possibly dig something up that they shouldn't. And it's, it's really interesting. The, the way that this long dead civilization kind of communicates that forward. It's, 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 it's a cool story. And I think it's definitely well worth a read. It'll make you think. 
Well, and that's what Star Trek does best is make us think, right? Exactly. And so if we get a Star Trek story making us thinking that then it's a good one. So I put the stamp of approval on this one. Here, here. Me too. <laughs> so recently on Literary Tracks, we have been reviewing the first original novels of each of the Star Trek series. And on today's feature, we're going to review the first original novel of The Next Generation. And this is a novel by Diane Carey, who's written plenty of novels back in the day. And this one came out in 1988 and is called Ghost Ship. So this came out towards the tail end of the first season of The Next Generation. As a matter of fact, it looks like uh, the printing happened on July 1988. So the first season had just ended, which means that she was writing it during the first season. So I'm sure she hadn't seen the last few episodes of the first season when she was writing this. So it's interesting to go into early books when we know so much about the characters after seven seasons and movies and other novels to go back to an early novel and see what did the author pick up on at the time that still holds true today as the series developed and what things maybe are a little different that don't kind of sit well with what we know of the next generation and its characters. But before we get really deep into that, Dan, when was the first time you read Ghost Ship? And this is the number one. It's This is when they numbered the books. It's number one. Because there was Encounter at Farpoint. Mm-hmm. There was a novelization, novelization of that, but they didn't number it. But this was numbered uh, one in those series. Right. Uh, well, the first time I read this book was actually last week. I have not read this book before. This is the first time I have ever read it. I've heard a lot about it over the years, but I've never actually sat down to read it until now. Wow. Indeed. I'm impressed. <laughs> so, And you have an actual hard copy. You Is it a used book that you bought recently or have you had it for a long period? It of time? is a used book. I bought it in a, at a used bookstore. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. It was quite some time ago. Uh, but it's just kind of been on my shelf and I've never gotten around to it. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't I didn't buy this book. I do, according to the uh, the copyright page, I do have a first printing copy of this book, which is kind of cool. But I definitely did not buy it at the time in 1988. I bought it at a used bookstore sometime in the last five or six years. Well, and your book is a little unusual because we were talking before the show on the other side of the page that it shows on the cover that yours was printed in Canada. Yeah, it has a little uh, little maple leaf in the corner and it says published in Canada. And uh, yeah, inside it says um, printed in Canada uh, by in Canada distributed by pa- Paper Jacks Limited in Markham, Ontario. So I'm wondering if they had like you know, Pocket Books had a Canadian subsidiary that they they printed other print runs of books out for Canadian audiences. It's kind of cool. Yeah, because you've never seen that on a cover of a Star Trek book before. No, and I'm I'm actually going to have to look through my collection a little more closely now to see if that's anywhere else, if if or if this is the only one I have that's like that. Well, mine is uh, printed in the USA. That's what it says in the inside cover, and I have the sixth edition, number six. So I did not get an original, and mine is not a used book. I bought this new. Oh, wow. And this is one of the early books that I read of Star Trek The Next Generation 
back when I started reading Star Trek books, which was in 1990. So it was around July, August. It was in the summer of 90 that I started reading Star Trek books. And I was trying to remember at what point did I read this one? I knew it had to be early on. So I'm looking on the back cover and there's a price tag on it. And it's from Kmart. (laughs) So I know I bought it at Kmart. And it does have a date on it. And it's September 1992. Mm, Very cool. So I read this, that makes it, what, 25 years ago. Wow. That's crazy <laughs> to think about. Oh, we're getting old. <laughs> 25 years ago, read this book, and 25 years later, I read it again. 25 years ago. <laughs> do you realize that you read that book half of a history of Star Trek ago? That's true. <laughs> we should be having a 25th anniversary party for this book. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Excellent. But when reading it this time, I didn't really remember much of this at all. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And oh, yeah, I was just like, it was like the first time reading it. I, I have no memories of the first time I read it. Having read over 300 Star Trek books, uh, a lot of this is a blur. Wow. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, our experience reading it this time, we both read physical copies, which is kind of cool. You know, it's it's nice. So many books I read nowadays tend to be ebooks that it's really nice to kind of sit down with a physical copy and uh, and and you know, read the words, flip the pages kind of thing. It's a it's a neat experience. Yeah, and I, and I like using bookmarkers again. Like I have these bookmarkers that John Jackson Miller gave me a few months ago, and so I've been using them, which is pretty cool too. <laughs> I'm bad. I have a uh, movie stub from Logan as my bookmark. <laughs> <laughs> it was whatever was on my nightstand at the time. <laughs> well, we should talk a little bit about the plot of this story. It's it's definitely a different one. So we'll we'll talk in a little bit for sure about the differences in the characters from the next generation, which some people say means that it takes place in an alternate universe where the characters are slightly different. But not only that, it takes place in an alternate universe where the Soviet Union did not fall in 1991, because in 1995, the crew of a Soviet aircraft carrier somehow is absorbed into a life form that imprisons them in a sort of dissociative mental state. And they're all kind of floating in there as, as ghosts, disembodied people kind of thing. And so hundreds of years later, this form threatens the crew of the enterprise with the same fate. And Picard, of course, must lead the crew out of danger. And in the end, he kind of faces a tough choice. Should he leave the victims of this thing to their fate or put them out of their misery by essentially destroying this thing and, and killing them. So what did you kind of think of kind of the basic story of this as, as a Star Trek adventure? The basic premise, the basic story feels like a Star Trek adventure because you are dealing with a creature that is an unknown and trying to figure things out. You're dealing with history and trying to relate this creature to what happened in history and the beings that are trapped inside, which we'll go much more detail later about that. But I think overall, I like the concept. It felt very quote alien to me, which I like. So, and seeing the crew trying to figure things out, is this a 
an intelligent being? Is it just, you know, they were relating it to how animals think or how insects work. So there was, they brought a lot of dialogue from the crew to try to figure out what this, this creature is and how to deal with it. So I did like that. What did you think, Dan? I, I like you, I think it's a very, it felt very Star Trek. You know, there's kind of the moral quandaries, the ethical stuff. And yeah, it's this strange alien form that the crew doesn't quite know what to make of. And, you know, you get the stuff with Deanna Troy and, and the and the telepathic slash empathic stuff that she's dealing with. And Data's kind of journey in this was, was really interesting. I, I think it works. Like the basic premise, it's it's interesting and it it's a good hook to kind of introduce you to this new crew early on. Well, and you made the point, too, about the Soviet ship. Uh, missing in 1995 <laughs> and of course the Soviet Union wasn't around anymore in 95 it was more like 1990 91 that uh, it dissolved it would be interesting to go and look at the ebook I don't think they would have corrected the date but if they didn't I think they should just move it back if, you know five years or something mm. or you know and it's interesting that she would have chosen for this event to happen in 95 when she wrote the book in 88. I mean, it could easily have taken place in the year she was writing this book. It could have been in the late 80s. There's no reason why it, it had to happen. Uh, the missing of this crew happened in the mid-90s. Well, I, th I think so. what it was, was there was, they were, they were testing that new weapon kind of thing. And I think it was futuristic enough that Diane Carey probably wanted to put it out a few years kind of thing. Um, What's what's interesting to me is that in, you know, 87, 88, when she was writing this book, there was just there was there was no warning that the Soviet Union would fall within a few years. You know, that to me is always really interesting with regards to the history of the Cold War and stuff. You know, when the Berlin Wall fell in 89, it was it was kind of a surprise like, oh, and then how quickly the country itself dissolved within two years after that was, you know really unexpected by a lot of people. So it's really cool that there's this little tiny slice of history right here where, you know, you could have gone either way just a few years and it would have totally been different. But because it, of the year it was written in, we get this view of the world that like, oh, the Soviet Union, yeah, it's still going to be around for a while kind of thing. Well, maybe it's not the Soviet Union that we know of. Maybe it's the remnants <laughs> of some renegade Soviet people or whatever that are even working with Khan in the eugenic <laughs> wars at this time <laughs> and developing new weapons. It could be. It's only one year before Khan leaves Earth. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think in the Star Trek universe, which unfortunately at this point I just have to admit is not the universe we're living in, darn it. Although, you know, we'd be in the middle of probably some pretty bad wars right now if it was, I guess. Uh, you know, it's it's different from our history. I guess Star Trek four Leningrad still exists. So maybe the Soviet union just never fell in Star Trek history. Oh, you know what? This is happening in the timeline where Edith killer killer didn't die. <laughs> That's what's going on here. <laughs> oh man. 
<laughs> We're just warping this to this book totally out of history. <laughs> <laughs> we are digging into one chapter, one paragraph way too deeply. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> we must be Star Trek nerds. What? <laughs> no, we wouldn't overanalyze something like crazy, would we? <laughs> Never. Well, speaking of overanalyze, I really want to overanalyze the characters in this book so bad. And you know what, Dan? You put in the notes just a list of our crew members. I started writing like detailed <laughs> notes for each one of them. I was like, this is going to be a lot of notes to put in here. And I thought, you know what? When you just listed them, I'm like, yeah, we just need to just talk through it. I'm not writing all this down. <laughs> so let's talk about this again. This is an early book. Now, we've done early first original novels of some of the other series we've done what we've done voyager we've done deep space nine we've even done the original pocketbooks novel for um the original series and i would say the characters have been spot on mm -hmm. I, the, for the most part those books fit in really well they they stand well today they would they would work well today going back and reading that and saying hey this takes place in the first year of the series this works this one kind of, i i i think it still works it works as a first season book <laughs> and i i guess i'll get into that more as we're going into the characters but just overall dan does it work for you or does it feel off well, it's definitely off, I think. That that's not to say it doesn't necessarily work, but it, it it definitely is a very different version of this crew than what we know. I I would say even in season 1 of The Next Generation. Now, the story I've always heard about this book is that when Diane Carey was writing it, uh she only had access to the script from Encounter at Farpoint and the the character descriptions from the show bible now i know it it was published in 88 presumably right after the first season had aired but i'm wondering if maybe she had written it earlier and it was held for publication for some reason or something like that or maybe the story that i heard that that's all she had access to is completely wrong i don't i don't really have any you know first person sources on that so I'm I'm not sure. That's what I've always heard is that she hadn't actually seen anything of the show. It was just working from the script and the the character descriptions in the show Bible. And if you ever read bits from the show Bible from the next generation before they actually started making the show, this book fits a lot of those characters. So, uh, for example, Riker, part of his character was going to be his prejudice against Data and his... Uh, not believing that he was a true life form and that that would change over the course of, you know, the season or the series or whatever. But so wait, they were going to make Riker into Dr. Pulaski. Exactly. <laughs> and as we know, Pulaski is basically Dr. McCoy. The reason I don't, this is go going off into a tangent, but I think what they wanted to do was set it up like a Kirk Spock McCoy relationship with data and Riker being the Spock and McCoy. Again, I have no I I I have no proof that that's what they were thinking, but just 
you know, that's kind of what I was thinking that maybe they were going for. The problem with that is Spock can be witty and have a comeback that's devastating and they can truly match wits. Whereas Data is such an innocent life form, you know, with not a lot of experience in that area that it just feels like someone's just being mean to him and he's being whipped and he's like, oh, okay. You know, that's sad. That's not fun. So I, I feel like that's, again, this is me going way out on a limb with no support whatsoever, but I feel like that's probably why that idea was abandoned and why a lot of that stuff with Pulaski, as much as I, I'm, I'm with Brandon, I actually really like the character of Pulaski, but I think that her ragging on Data really didn't work. And I think it's for that reason that Data was so, uh, played such the straight man and, and wasn't able to be have those witty barbs and comebacks like Spock would and, and really kind of smack McCoy down. Data wouldn't really smack someone down kind of thing. He would just respond very earnestly. So that, that that's just kind of my opinion there. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that piece that you were saying, the original idea with Riker as being one who's prejudiced with Data. And that definitely is reflected in this novel. I felt a little uncomfortable with the characters. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they did feel like where the characters were in the first few episodes, mm -hmm. you know, cause I remember watching the next generation for the first time. And those first few episodes of, of, of the season were, I just thought, man, Picard is like really just pissed at everybody. He's kind <laughs> of a hard jerk. You know, he's just kind of like, Oh, get out of my way. Oh, are you sure about that? Don't question me. Blah, 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 blah. And he was very much like that in this book and that's the first character we'll talk about is Picard mm. uh, you know I felt like he, like he's just constantly rolling his eyes you know every every time you know Yo, Dr. Crusher tell me about what's going on well this is going just get to the point <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> it's like I'm having a bad day I haven't had my coffee <laughs> <laughs> yeah some of that stuff like it almost feels like those characteristics but taken to just a just slightly too far a little bit of an extreme so for example tasha yar would be giving a report or something and saying like oh wait it's disappeared captain and picard would think something like oh she doesn't know how to work that thing like well come on like what's wrong with you blah 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 <laughs> and i'm like that would would that really be your first i i i mean like as as strict as picard was and as as hard as he was i i don't feel like he automatically assumed incom incompetence on the part of people around him. And there were a few moments right. in this that I was like, oh, really? Like, I, I feel like Picard is a really good leader. And yeah, in those first episodes, he's a little strict, a little harsh, but I never thought of him as that jerk boss that you just hate. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple times he really came across as that in this. There were times I was reading those lines and trying to make it sound softer mm -hmm. make it you exactly. know have him just be a little more you know forgiving you know he's kind of being a little hard but he, you know he's almost like a mentor mm -hmm. you know i'm just i'm just trying to push you in the right direction but at the same time i thought well let's take this as fact let's say that this novel is is truly canon and this is what happened i kept placing this novel very early 
very early into the series is maybe it's just this is occurring immediately after encounter at far point or even after the second episode and 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 i thought maybe he's at a place where he's got a new crew a new ship and for some reason in the past maybe on the stargazer or something else in between he kind of has trust issues and it's something he has to overcome because you know again in the, in the book and as we saw in the series he wasn't comfortable with having families, mm-hmm. you know, and he wasn't comfortable around children. And of course, as time goes on, that starts to change. And even into the novels, he you know, has a child with Beverly. And, 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 and so we've seen a lot of change in Picard over time. So I like to think that he's approaching this as I've got this new crew. I've got to kind of snap them into place. I got to show them that I'm in charge I need them to get to the point. There's a certain standard that I expect from them. So I'm going to be really hard here in the beginning until I get them to where I want them to be. And once we get there, then it's kind of smooth sailing and I can start to back up, mm-hmm. you know, I don't. And, and maybe that's even the parent in me. You know, it's like, you know, raising my children. I felt like when they were younger, I almost had to be a little harder about things with them. Now, don't touch that. Put that down. No, come over here. You know? <laughs> and now it's not like no, that. No, Wolf, They're don't older. put that in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's an actual line in the book no. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, what, what do you think? Does, does that work for you or, or do you just, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm trying to be too forgiving. <laughs> no, it, it makes sense. But yeah, I, I, I feel like I, I had that same experience while I was reading and I was kind of trying to round off the harsher edges a little bit and say, well, maybe he actually said this. But no, you know, if you, if you take what's in the book as face value, like he's pretty strict and pretty harsh at times. And one thing I actually highlighted, which I found really funny is I, I've never read Diane Carey's novelization of Broken Bow, but there are a lot of stories out there that about how critical she is of Enterprise. Clearly did not like the script or the show or the characters. And I was wondering if a little bit of that attitude was kind of peeking through in this book as well. There's just one part in particular that, I thought was hilarious where Picard is thinking about Wesley Crusher and he says to himself something along the lines of, you know, why on earth did I ever make that stupid decision to make him an acting ensign? That was the dumbest thing that any starship captain's ever done. Oh, well, I must've been out of my mind, but I've got to live with it now. Blah, blah. And I'm just like, (laughs) really? Like, and you know, and you're not reading this, but that's almost how it read. Yeah, like it was, that's how it sounded. Like that wasn't the exact language used, but that's what the author in my mind was, was screaming to me reading that. Yeah. You know? And it's like, oh, that's a little, <laughs> is now Diane Carey is very well known as a huge fan of the original series and maybe not quite as big a fan of the later series as we said, most, most especially Enterprise. So I was wondering if that was a little bit of that kind of peeking through there. There were a couple other moments, but that was the one that really leapt out at me. What I really liked is how she wrote his feelings about commanding 
this new galaxy class starship mm-hmm. with families that he felt that he is more of a governor of a colony than a captain of a starship mm-hmm. because now he is he's governing a society a society of families and, and you know these with children and and it's like a city in space and yeah, the directive has been, especially in those early seasons, that the captain stays on the bridge and when there's an away team mission, the first officer goes. So he starts to feel the regret of the old days of, of not having a regular starship anymore, but having this colony spaceship of families and in this 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 society basically on on a starship where he is the governor that he has to be protected. He's managing all them and the operations. And when there's an away mission, he has to send his first officer to go do it. Mm -hmm. And he felt like it's playing it safe now. And he has to tend to the ship. And he looked at Riker as the barrier. Riker's doing what he wants to do. And, 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 Riker's in his way. Mm-hmm. And it's not because it's a personal problem with Riker. It's the role that Riker's in as first officer. Riker is the one that has to do the away missions. Riker's the one who basically gets to do all the fun, all the stuff Picard wants to do. And because Riker, that's Riker's job and Riker's supposed to say to the captain, you know, no, sir, I, I, I'll go do that. We need to protect you. He kind of resents Riker for that. Mm-hmm. And again, not personally, it's the role that he has to fulfill. It's what it's what Starfleet has set up for him on a galaxy-class starship like this. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how she really delved deeper into that. We got that in the series, but we really got into his head and how he was really viewing this as, I don't feel like a Starfleet captain anymore. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And I... I I wonder if that was maybe something in the series Bible too, that the series would explore more the idea of this city in space and how like Picard worries when the ship rocks kind of thing. He's like, how many people just fell over like civilians and maybe hit their head or, you know what I mean? Like he's worried about all the people on board and it's something that early on in the next generation, they really talked a lot about and, and thought about but in later episodes like for example if you watch season three's the defector and picard takes his galaxy class starship with all of the hundreds of families on board and rockets into the romulan neutral zone to find a romulan colony or a romulan outpost supposedly building up to war and and take them on and i'm like okay that's a moment that you would detach the saucer section and leave them in safety and the show just kind of seemed to fall away from that idea and drop it and like if the families weren't important to the episode we're talking about we're just going to kind of ignore that they're there and picard in that episode talks about the men and women under his command being willing to die for you know what they're doing and i always when i love when i watch that episode and i love that episode but when i watch that episode i think like what about all the civilians on board that like, are they standing up with their hands over their hearts saying, yeah, we're willing to die for all of this too? So it's really interesting. This book really takes that into account and and really talks about it and what that means and, you know, what the future of the Federation is. My favorite part, I think, of the entire book was 
Picard thinking about that and talking about how future citizens of the Federation will be true citizens of the Federation living on these interstellar ships. You know, you wouldn't say you're from Earth or you're from Vulcan. You would say I'm from the Enterprise. And that's cool. Right. That's, that, that's such a neat idea. And, and, and what you were saying about the families in later seasons, there were times where I started to wonder, did the writers forget that there are families mm-hmm. on this starship? And then all of a sudden there'd be an episode where you see a kid and it's like, well, obviously they do remember. And it also reminds me of like Voyager. You know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, oh, we have Starfleet and Maquis crew members. And after a while, that seemed to blur away. Like, you know, do they even remember that they're Maquis, you know, <laughs> that they don't always get along? But uh, it, it it is interesting concept. I like that idea of I'm not from Earth. I'm not from Vulcan. I'm from the Enterprise. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's 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 pretty cool. But let's talk about Riker, number one. <laughs> so. I didn't have a problem with the way his character was written. There were some parts maybe that seemed a little off. I had some other problems. And before I go into that, Dan, I'm just curious. What did you think of Riker? Well, I had a a few issues. Um, I I feel like his voice was a little closer to the Riker we know from the series, like just generally when he's interacting with most of the crew, uh, you know, it felt more like Riker, but you know, there were definitely a few issues. I think the, the obvious one that everybody talks about when they talk about this book, of course, is something we've already brought up, which is his attitude towards data and that sort of thing. One thing that I found was interesting about how his character is written here was we were talking about how Picard is envious of Riker and sees Riker as the person who's, you know, in his, in Picard's way of, of being a starship captain of old. Well, Riker's perspective is really interesting where he sees himself when he's on the bridge as being useless because he, he feels like he's just kind of hovering there and he's, implementing the captain's orders but he doesn't really have a station he's just kind of there you know to be a second captain or like the captain's right hand kind of thing and i thought that was really interesting kind of commenting on the role of the first officer and that sort of thing i I thought it was a really different perspective and one that i hadn't really thought of before so you know i did appreciate that a little bit you know, talking through this makes me appreciate the book more so than when I read it, because it really is showing that these characters are trying to find their place. And they're also trying to figure out how they relate, not just into their jobs, but with each other. And so it would make sense that he's questioning, you know, what is, you know, is this what I'm doing on the bridge? I, I kind of feel useless. And, and there were times he was, you know, do I even want to you know, serve under this, this guy, this Picard guy. I'm not even that sure about him. And Picard's just like, you know, I'm not even sure about this number one guy. You know, like they're still figuring things out. You know, there's times I've, you know, people have got to know me over time. Sometimes they'll say, you know, when I first met you, I was, you know, you were kind of quiet, but now it's like you, you talk all the time. Like you don't even seem like the same person when I first met you. You know, (laughs) I've gotten that comment every once in a blue moon. And so it's almost like that. It's like when we're first meeting these characters, they don't quite seem like we know them the way we do now, but because they're just kind of falling into place. They're they're a new family. They kind of have to work out those little 
kinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can see why Riker would maybe be a little bit of a jerk about data. I don't think it came across really bad. I think he was just, you know, well, data's you know, a machine, isn't he? I mean, whatever, you know, and I don't think he was a total jerk, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that way about him? It it just didn't come out across that way to me. I think not intentionally a jerk or not as much as Pulaski was today. Yeah, no, not 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 intentionally a jerk or not not intentionally antagonistic, but maybe a little bit un um hmm, what would the word be? Unthinking. You know, just kind of like, oh, he's just a machine. He's like a tricorder. I don't I don't have to take his feelings into account. I just, you know, data get zapped on the bridge and you know might possibly have died and riker's like next time that happens you know stay connected because it's possible that this thing could communicate through you and everyone else is like don't you care or well jordy in particular is like don't you care that he almost died and he's like well he's not alive he's just a machine like you know he's he's not being a jerk he's just you know doesn't take it into account that data might have feelings and we'll get to data and data data does seem to have feelings in this which is an interesting take on his character as well i i like how you said that Riker is not thinking he's you know unthinking about things and <laughs> because that comes up a few times in here and crusher takes Riker to task on that when it comes to Jordy. She's, you know, at one point she lectures Riker. She brings him into sickbay and says, you know, she crosses her arms and says, you know, hey, you know, the way you're talking to Jordy, you know, he, you know, you're telling him that he doesn't like I'm telling you, you don't listen to Jordy is what she starts saying to Riker. You're not listening to him. Mm -hmm. You think she says, quote, you think all he does is see but you're not understanding what he has to go through and what that visor does and that he's in pain that, you know, he can, you can look at something and say, Oh, this is green or whatever, but he has to kind of translate that. He doesn't see it quite the way you do. So for you to just expect him to look at something and give you a report on that isn't going to happen. He has to process it. Mm -hmm. He's got to, he looks at it differently. And so that, this this thing of not of Riker maybe not understanding data and not understanding Jordy and and whatever again I don't it's like you said it's not like he's being a jerk he's maybe just not thinking or maybe he's not that familiar with them yet to really know what to think but at the same time this is where I started to really have a problem with the book I felt everybody was being a little bit too unfair to Riker hmm. I felt like you know every time Riker would state something they'd all kind of like, oh, seriously? Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, really? Like, you're going to go that direction? Like, there's one point where, and again, we'll get to this later, but there's there's a big decision. There's a big philosophy, philosophical conversation going on. And it seems like the crew all of a sudden is on board with one way. And Riker's like, well, I'm not too sure about that. You know, maybe that's not the correct, way to go and they just look at him like really you're gonna you're gonna be that way come <laughs> on dude and as a matter of fact and i've got the book here i'm opening it up on page 214 and it's the very first line on this page so data's off he's in a shuttlecraft he just leaves on his own doesn't tell anybody 
which we'll talk more, I guess, when we get to data, but Jordy sees Riker and says, he took a shuttlecraft and headed out to find the creature. And it's your fault, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that throughout the book where people are just like calling him out. You know, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene in particular, Jordy just kind of keeps poking at Riker about this thing. And admittedly, he's angry and he thinks of Data as his friend and and is mad at Riker. But he does go too far. Jordy is, I would say, insubordinate in that scene. And Riker kind of calls him on it. He's like, okay, Jordy, thank you. I get it. Kind of thing. Like, you don't, I I got it. Thank you. You can stop now. (laughs) But, uh. Well, I mean, let's 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 move on to Jordy then for this one, because I, I do have to say I agree with you. People are unnecessarily harsh on Riker a little bit for this, for sure. And Jordy is is the worst offender. And that scene in particular, I was doing the like roll my eyes away from the book. Like, OK, we get it. Um, Jordy in this novel is really interesting. I think the friendship between him and Data Again, this is all just guessing on my part, but that must be something that was outlined in the character Bible as well, because it's so it's so reinforced here. And I think it's really interesting. And I love that they connect the fact that Jordy has a mechanical aspect to him through his visor for why he's able to empathize with Data a bit and the stuff that he goes through with his visor, which I have to say, I think is the most honest and most interesting exploration of Jordy's quote unquote disability that we ever get in Star Trek in or out of a novel like I, that I've read anyway, I, I feel like I never, I'm like Riker. I didn't give it any thought as to how Jordy sees through his visor. You know, it's just like, Oh, he has a visor. So that, that shortcoming that some you know that he has is overcome he can see now it's different than the way we see but he can see and i love that the book took a lot of time to really kind of break down how the visor would work and how jordy sees through it and what that means and how he's kind of had to rewire his brain to be able to accommodate that and again it's something that i never thought of and i thought was really really thought provoking when i read this book yeah, it. I think that's exactly it. It really got us to think about Jordy, uh, and we're saying, you know, Riker's not thinking, but you're right. We don't always think about what Jordy has to go through with the visor, what he is actually seeing. I mean, you can read tons of Star Trek novels and see episodes, and there's nothing that even touches upon how he sees things, mm-hmm. which you don't need to do in every book. I mean, he, he has his way of doing, you know, seeing things and other people have way of doing things and experiencing things. And you don't have to touch on that all the time. It's, it's just part of his everyday life, but to actually take the moment to think, yeah, you know, it's like Jordy, he can't just look at an apple. He's got to really learn to figure out what an apple looks like to him and what that means and put that all that data together in his head and and figure it out and over time once he sees an apple more and more he knows what it is but it takes some learning Mm -hmm. and so when he sees something new 
he's got to process it differently. I mean, think about all the times the away teams go on a mission and, and you meet a new alien species. It's the first time we're seeing this alien race, but he's seeing something different. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not seeing what we're seeing. And it's very, it's an interesting thing to really take in if when next time you watch a episode of The Next Generation and they're seeing something new for the first time, take a moment and think, well, you know, Jordy's not seeing that. He's seeing something different. And how's he processing that? You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if it's like, you know, if Riker if ever would say to Jordy, oh my gosh, Jordy, what a beautiful woman she is. And Jordy would be like, oh, that's that's not how I envisioned her. <laughs> <laughs> or, know? oh, that's a woman. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Make hey, a mental note okay. of that. <laughs> Speaking of that, that's a good segue to Yar. I want to touch on Yar because this is the thing I had a bit of a problem with. This is the the problem I had. It's it's not a big deal, but there were several times that Diane Carey, every time she brought up Yar, and Yar's not in this book a lot, but every time she brought her up, she had to point out the fact that she looks like a little boy <laughs> yeah. because of her haircut and her physique. Her, what am I trying to say? Her physique mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like I, I i don't know it was just a little too much and i thought you know at the time and we're talking 1987 when the show came out i mean that style of hair that denise crosby had and almost kind of continues to have but uh, that short hairstyle back then wasn't that unusual for women and it wasn't like short hair on women was an unusual thing in the 80s. I mean, Pat Benatar and so on and so forth. I mean, it was mm-hmm. quite popular. So I, I thought it was really odd that she kept, you know, she looks like a boy. And, well, the way she grew up and, and the experience she had when she was younger, she didn't really get to be feminine. And and so that's the way she is the way she is now. And I, I don't know. I just didn't. I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. I just felt like it implied that, you know, to be a woman, you have to be this way. And so since she's not this way, she's she comes across like a boy. Yeah, it was it was a little grating for sure how that kept coming up. And it's like, OK, OK. I mean, you know, that is we, we see that a little bit in episodes like I think Yar kind of says something similar in the second episode, The Naked Now when she's talking to Troy, you know, you wear such beautiful clothes. I never get to be feminine, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a little weird. Um, the thing that I noticed about Yar, and I'm going to kind of group Worf in here as well, how Picard always kept referring to them as, as his two hotheads who are always flying off the handle at the slightest provocation. And they're so angry all the time and so full of aggression. And, I, it, it seemed odd to me because, I mean, Yar, in her role as chief of security, you know, advocates for an aggressive stance a lot and that sort of thing, but never really thought of her as a hothead. I, I don't know. Did you, did you ever really picture her that way? No, not really. No. But again, I think it's what you touched on before. I think Diane Carey is working a lot from the series Bible. But then at the same time, I would think that other authors that we've read early first original novels on we're working in that same situation Mm -hmm. but i also feel that i mean when we talked about you know the original series it had been on a while uh by the time the novel we uh, reviewed the entropy effect but 
you know, when it comes to Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and then Enterprise, I think they probably they knew how to make a series is, I guess is what I'm saying. Like the next generation was the first of the new series mm-hmm. of starting over again. And, and they wrote a Bible and it took them a while to kind of figure things out and make it work. And, you know, people, you know, usually talk about the first two seasons were just kind of getting their feet wet. And by the time you got to the third season, they've kind of figured things out. And I think because they figured things out with the next generation, they figured out, how to start off another series with Deep Space Nine and Voyager and probably and Enterprise and probably kept closer to those series Bibles than they did with the next generation. So if she's working from the Bible, it may feel a little I mean series Bible, not the Bible. Mm-hmm. Come on, people. <laughs> no, but you know, if she's working from the series Bible, then it may feel a little off because no, they kind of changed things. So they didn't keep Yara or they didn't go with Yara as being a hothead. And Worf in this book didn't feel off to me at all. Yeah, Worf actually, I think, was was spot on, which is interesting because I feel like he had very little that was kind of known or said about his character throughout the first the whole first season of The Next Generation with maybe like one episode of an exception kind of thing. So I thought that was really interesting that that voice seemed so genuine, which is interesting. And I'm I'm really glad you brought up what you did because I that's something I wanted to mention is I think Diane Carey had a very difficult task with this novel. Again, not just not knowing the characters, but really not being familiar with the language of 24th century Star Trek. Because, you know, I was kind of thinking as I was reading this, if you take these same conversations and thoughts and put it in an original series setting it feels more natural you know like i i could see bones being a little bit more quick to fly off the handle at certain things and you know people maybe making their opinions known a little bit louder than yeah like captain i'm giving her everything she's got you know and yeah they're expressing themselves more in the original series yeah exactly so it's exactly like you said, this was the first time they'd done another Star Trek besides the original series. And it has a very specific language, a very specific tone that in a lot of ways is carried on through Deep Space Nine and Voyager, different permutations, but kind of that same feeling, that same 24th century Star Trek feeling that because Diane Carey came first and supposedly again based on what i've heard hadn't even seen the show and was just working from those uh those pre-production materials really had you know this this herculean task to to knock out this story and put those characters in those situations and make them sound even somewhat like they might actually be on the screen yeah and i think and we've done all the first originals at this point, except for maybe Enterprise. Is that right, Dan? I can't remember. No, we did Enterprise. That was by the book. Did we do? By the book. Yeah. Yeah, so we did do that. So this is the last of them. We've done all the others. We actually do have one more. Or is it Deep Space Nine? I can't remember. We did Deep Space Nine. We did Voyager. We did Enterprise. We did the original series. We did The Next Generation. But we actually still have Star Trek Discovery's first original novel to do, which is really exciting. So yes, September twenty fourth, we get the series. So hopefully, we should get an announcement of when that first novel will be coming too. So 
Yeah, and I think uh, probably probably about a month after that or something. I don't think it'll be the day it mm-hmm. premieres, but shortly after, yeah. That'd be my guess, so, yeah. Yeah. So let's hit real quick, because we're kind of running out of time here. So these other uh, characters, Crusher, I thought, I thought she was pretty on target, but she was a little more snappy with Picard than usual, mm-hmm. in my opinion. A little more of like, you know, I'm getting to that, Jean-Luc, you know? He kept like, okay, get on with it. I'm getting there. Trust me. <laughs> I, I, hey, let me get this out. Let me tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Crusher was good. I think Crusher was one of the better ones that I was most recognizable anyway to be. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I don't think Troy was too far off either, but a lot of the books she was going through a challenge with these entities kind of in her head. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't herself for most of the book anyway. Yeah. There, there were some bits of her characterization. I think I, I feel like her character changed a lot between encounter at Farpoint and the rest of the series because if you watch Encounter at Farpoint, whenever she's reading someone else's emotions, it's like she's feeling them at the same time, too. I feel great pain and, you know, great joy and happiness. And then, like, later on, she just reports on it. She doesn't necessarily live through it. And I feel like this book was more like she was living through it at the same time. So at the a lot of the time she was kind of, you know, just overcome with sorrow or overcome with pain and and all this kind of stuff which you know if man if you're a psychologist working on a ship full of people that's that's going to be very debilitating and a huge hindrance to doing your job i would say so glad they kind of did away with that (laughs) yeah yeah that encounter of far point troy is is a little much (laughs) a little bit (laughs) you know yeah I like just to assume that she was nervous it was her first you know (laughs) mission on the starship and she hit the bottle a little Ooh. too, one too many or something. And just, ah, you know, I'm really feeling the emotions on this mission. <laughs> the bridge crew of the Enterprise D, the untold story. Behind <laughs> right. the L cars. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> and Picard's like, we may have a problem with this one. Maybe we need to get a really good, wise bartender on the ship. Hmm, I need to call Guinan. <laughs> Ooh, too close to home. <laughs> Well, the last character of our crew is Wesley, and there wasn't a whole lot of Wesley in here, but I do like how they touched upon, I mean, because it was like one of these things where it was like, hey, Wesley, you're the one who's going to try to rescue the ship. We had one of those moments in here. He's going <laughs> to rescue the ship. But they were pointing out the fact that, you know, he is this prodigy, that mm-hmm. there's something special about him, that he's not he's not like any other kid. So I like that they went there because I think one of the things that maybe people didn't pick up on the first season or so of the next generation is there's something different about Wesley. Mm -hmm. He's just not a typical teenage kid that any teenage kid can rescue the ship. And the crew is a bunch of idiots that he, there's something more about him. He's, he is some prodigy. He's, he's almost like some next Einstein or something of that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I thought, I thought was great. But at the same time, I'm also really glad that, they had him mess up a little bit, which I feel like they didn't do really much in the next generation. I guess, you know, with a few notable exceptions, but you know, I I liked that they comment on, yeah, he's a genius. He's a prodigy, but at the same time, there's some, some things that he just doesn't think about because he doesn't have the experience and that kind of thing, 
which I thought was a re- you know really good balance take on his character for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that was a really good summary of the characters. Mm-hmm. I think we hit it off pretty good. <laughs> we didn't talk a lot about Data, which Oh yeah, I'm sorry. We forgot about Data. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. We're just a bunch of Rikers. We don't really think about Data. <laughs> well, cuz he's a machine. Yeah, exactly. He's not a character. <laughs> I mean, come on. Right. No, actually Data is another one that I think was really done interestingly in this book. Um there's there's a line in a recent Star Trek novel where they talk about how data before he had the emotion chip didn't have human emotions but he did have android emotions and if you watch the next generation there are moments where you can't say data doesn't totally have emotions because yeah he he's he's showing something there kind of thing and i think this book kind of had that a little bit where you know he has kind of this basic level of emotion and and seems like he's hurt at times with certain words and that sort of thing, which I I thought that was an interesting take. Besides that little difference, I think Diane Carey did a really good job with his character. And I think that would have been probably one of the more difficult ones to write. Yeah. Again, I didn't feel like he was off. He felt like data to Mm -hmm. me and especially first season data. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like you're saying, with that kind of emotion, like he he's figuring things out, which is one of the reasons he goes off on a shuttlecraft and it's all Riker's fault. <laughs> well, because also, you know, it was interesting because the creature, and so this will go into the, the next part that we want to talk about, the, the creature has absorbed these, um, well, the humans from the Soviet ship that we talked about earlier, and I guess maybe some other beings from other places. And Data's really using this as an opportunity as if the creature is looking to absorb the soul, the essence of living beings, if it takes from me, then I know I'm actually living. If it doesn't take from me, then I am just machine. Mm -hmm. And I really like that, that play in there. And I don't even know if he really got his answer without giving too much away. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure. It's a little ambiguous at the end, which I feel like is probably on purpose because you don't really want to answer one of I of what I think is one of the central questions of the entire Next Generation series. You don't really want to answer that in, in the first novel that isn't even an episode kind of thing. So I feel like it, it's it's an interesting step. If if you take this as part of the history of the character, it's an interesting step in his journey to discover his humanity, you know, to, to use all the cliches that they use in the next generation for Data's journey kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting question. I think the actions he took were a little drastic. I don't know that that was in Data's character, but... Yeah, it's dramatic. It works. It, it was it was interesting for sure. Yeah, it was that was maybe a little off character, but it, yeah, it was interesting. It, it was something I wanted to see play out. But at the same time, what we learned from this creature is that Troy is sensing and hearing these souls, and I keep saying souls, uh, because it's. They're physically not there. The people from the Soviet ship aren't within the creature physically. 
They're mentally there. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the souls of themselves have been trapped in this creature for several hundred years. And they're making a plea to Troy that, you know, we were immortal, but we have no life. We can't do anything. We're just here within this this creature. We're just we're just existing. Mm-hmm. But we have no purpose. And there's and we have no will to do things on our own. And and we want to end this. We want an end to our lives Mm -hmm. because we don't feel like we have a life now. And so they're reaching out to her and saying, we want you to kill us. Now, the question comes up then from the crew, do we kill them? I mean, because that's not the Starfleet way of doing things. You don't kill life. You don't kill innocent beings. They're not in pain. And this is where Dr. Crusher goes on a big, long speech from a medical standpoint of things. You, know, you can have a patient that is in severe pain and maybe is dying and maybe you pull the plug at that moment. But these people aren't in pain. Mm-hmm. It's just they just they want to they just have the will not to live anymore. So then the concept of suicide comes up. Well, isn't. You know, that's what people, people who commit suicide are people that, you know, they may not be in physical pain. Some are, some aren't, mm-hmm. but they're just unhappy and they want it to end. And, you know, you don't, you're not going to support suicide. At least I hope not. And I mean, so a lot of these questions really start coming up uh, in the book. I'm trying to see here. It looks like it's, uh, if anybody has the book and wants to go back and just kind of see the section I'm talking about, this would be uh, chapter eight. And there's, 13 chapters in the book so it's about you know like two-thirds of the way through or so there's a lot of things that come up i don't want to go too deep into this mm-hmm. it's kind of a negative thing because we're talking about life and death and and when you give up life and again this is one of those things where they basically are making the decision like they should probably go ahead and and fulfill their wishes and and kill them and that's when Riker's like, well, I don't, I don't know if we should. We, we don't take life. And they're like, what? What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, Picard makes what I think is the only logical decision you can make in that situation. And that's to get into a sensory deprivation tank, I guess. Yeah, that was a little <laughs> that weird. That was really <laughs> weird. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so you're in the middle of this crisis and... It's like, you know what? I'm going to get, and he even says while he's in there, it's like, well, Riker did say I should relax a bit too. So, okay. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) really? But, you know, what it does do is serve to show Picard what that sort of experience would be like. So he's, he's basically paralyzed. He can't feel his body at all. Um, if he could feel his body enough to even develop an itch on his face, he couldn't scratch it. Like he couldn't couldn't move but he was he's not even aware enough to be able to feel his face he's totally conscious but totally weightless in the middle of of this space and not able to feel any part of his body so you know of course after a few hours he's freaking out (laughs) you know he's panicking because he's alone with his thoughts and he's relived all the good memories and now he's starting in on the negative ones and he comes to realize that it is kind of a personal hell, that kind of situation. So, you know, that that it's ostensibly to help him aid 
to aid him in making this decision, you know, should, should I destroy this and end, end these people's suffering or allow them or force them to, to carry on as they are kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting. I just think like you could have arrived at that decision a different way. It seemed weird to jump in a sensory deprivation tank in the middle of everything that was going on. And I didn't feel that it really helped him out that much on the decision. Yeah, it didn't didn't really get referred to afterwards. Like he obviously had kind of a horrific experience and you know, he does decide to you know, we're spoiling the book of course, but he does decide to carry out the wishes of the the people on the ghost ship, but he doesn't really refer back to why he made that decision or what about that experience made him make that decision so it it seemed odd that you know it was a, a big part of the book but it doesn't seem to carry any weight going forward or if it does we're not told in what way it did and this is going back to what we were talking earlier about data of did he really find that his answer we never really got an answer to that it's almost like there's these two concepts going on but i don't feel like we really got the answer or the resolution to those events yeah yeah it's a, it's a little bit unsatisfying maybe like you, you feel like maybe not having everything wrapped up in a nice little bow but you know it'd be nice if if we got some sort of indication from picard like what role that that experience played in his decision or what data took away from that experience at the end like we know what happened but we don't really know how data feels about it or what he thinks now based on that experience and it would be nice to kind of at least get that little bit of a coda to find that out overall i mean do you have any other comments about the book i was just thinking we'd just kind of go into our last thoughts on it i i agree i think we've we've teased this one apart pretty thoroughly <laughs> <laughs> well you know, sometimes it helps for me to talk about a book. I can read a book and go, oh, yeah, you know, that was pretty good. And then when I sit here and talk to somebody about it and go through it, sometimes I appreciate the book even more. And I would say that's kind of the case with this. Um, Therapeutic I was being... podcasting. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm laying on the couch right now as we're doing this, you know, like I'm in a psych office. But, it, you know, I would say... I was leaning towards like a three out of five stars type situation, but I, I'm going to bump it up by another half star and say more like three and a half. I think the the characters were a little off for the reasons we discussed earlier, and I don't feel that that's any fault of the author. I think just like the show, it, it it's trying to find its place, not just in starting a new series, but really starting anew with the f whole franchise at that time. And I could tell she was really, probably really working a lot with that series Bible, as you were pointing out, Dan. And But the, the concept of the story was interesting, and, and I liked what she was doing with Data, uh, that his exploration of himself. So, I mean, it's, it's just, in a historic way, in Star Trek, I always feel like it's something you want to pick up and read as a Star Trek fan, just to see, you know, what... What was the thought process of the next generation in the early days? And I think this kind of shows that. And 
So it's an interesting read from that standpoint also, not just from a story standpoint, but just, you know, where was their thought and thinking of the characters in the series at that time? And I mean, it is well-written. So, you know, again, I'd give it three and a half out of five and it's 258 pages. So it's, you know, fairly quick read. It's not a really long book. And so, yeah, I say if you're a Star Trek fan of the, and especially of the next generation, I think it's worth checking out sometime. Yeah, I I think I would agree mostly with what you said there. You know, Star Trek history is kind of filled with these roads not taken or alternate takes or early versions. And I mean, maybe this is this veers a little bit from what we know of what became of the next generation, but Gold Key Comics this ain't. Like it's not that big a diversion. The characters are a little bit off. Uh, Brandon Shamatala was actually supposed to join us for this podcast. He wasn't able to make it, but he did have a couple of points that I kind of wanted to share. And I think, you know, his views kind of line up a lot with ours. Um, He thought the book was very good, but it missed the characters the most. And again, for a lot of the reasons that we've already discussed, one thing that I thought was interesting is he mentioned it made him think of the bickering Bickleys from the early TNG comics and he wondered why everyone was yelling. (laughs) Right. And I think that kind of feeds into what we were saying about Picard and his, his harshness and, you know, the next generation. And again, this goes back to what we were saying, the language of 24th century Star Trek. That was one of the mandates handed down by Gene Roddenberry was that the crew members don't get into fights with each other. There's not a lot of, 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 conflict among the characters and this book definitely had more conflict between the characters than we're used to in the next generation so i think that that makes it tonally a little different than what we're used to but if you kind of take that into account it's a really interesting story i wish there'd been a little bit more of a wrap-up to it like we said some of the the main points of the book kind of feel a little bit unfinished But at the same time, it's a very interesting Star Trek story uh, with maybe, as Brandon says, a few too many exclamation points in it. But (laughs) (laughs) but and it's interesting that you said that this discussion bumped your score up because I feel like it did the same for me. And I, I feel like I was a little bit harsher than you. I came into this wanting to give it two out of five stars and uh, it's it's actually bumped up to a three out of five stars for me because of a lot of the things that we talked about. Data's experiences, you know, being able to talk with you about what he goes through and what all of the characters kind of go through made me appreciate this book a little bit more. So, you know, therapeutic podcasting, I think that's a really good term that we might have to adopt because, you know, it, reading a book in isolation is... It is fun. You know, I, I read lots of books that aren't just Star Trek books, but being able to talk about it or even just listen to a podcast about it, like our listeners are doing right now, is a lot of, is, is you know, a, a really interesting way to kind of coalesce your thoughts on a book. So, you know, if we can be therapeutic podcasting for any Star Trek readers out there, that's, that's great. That's really cool. So yeah, I would, I would give this one an updated three out of five sensory deprivation tanks, because why not? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? I mean, Picard feels the same way. Therapeutic podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think we're pretty much on the same page with Ghost Chip, you know. It was product of its time. It's a little bit of a different take on the next generation. Not necessarily a bad take, but very clearly not the direction that the series went in. But at the same time, an interesting story that I think we both got a lot out of. Yeah, I did get a lot out of this. And I'm almost curious to go back and read some of the other earlier next generation novels and, and see how much it fits into this and the style of writing and of the characters or, you know, how to, how they develop over time, you know, it starts to fit in with what we see later in the series. And one thing I want to point out that I did like about the book that we forgot to mention is in some of the early novels. And I think the scripts, Troy refers to Riker as Bill. Mm -hmm. And I think it's Tasha that asks you know, why, why do you call him Bill? And everybody else calls him Will. And she says something about, well, Bill reminds her of a Betazoid uh, word that means, I think it was shaving. Shaving cream, yeah. Shaving cream, yeah. right. Which I think is funny because he later develops a beard and she stops calling him Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought of that too. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> like a little bit of unintended kind of coincidence there. It's really cool. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty funny. So, but that was, that was, that was good discussion. I, again, it's one of these things that was like, I don't even know, you know, there's not, I don't know how much we're going to get into this, but we went in pretty far into this book. We, we took a lot of time on that, but it's been fun talking about it. But of course, it's not the only thing we're discussing here on the Trek FM network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, the orb. When Lieutenant Saru says, I sense the coming of death. They could be playing staying alive, staying alive in the background. And like, whatever, man. <laughs> BG Sam, staying alive. staying alive. Aren't you listening to the sound system on this bridge? Man, you're bell bottoms too, side boy. <laughs> that would be awesome if they had bell bottoms on the Discovery uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Meta Trex. Garrick really typifies, personifies that snake-like way of kind of slithering around in the shadows, more subtle than any other character well, in the Star Trek universe. Plain, simple Garrick would be the first to say that the clothes make the Cardassian. <laughs> Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. This episode was actually banned by the BBC for many years. And they always said, I don't know if this is true, not so much because of the kind of allegorical significance of the episode, but because of this uh, single line in it where Data says, he basically says, oh, well, you know, the IRA basically achieved what they wanted in, I think it's 2024. 2024, is, yeah. You know, it's uh, <laughs> coming up. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you find your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. Hitting that subscribe button not only means that you get the podcasts as soon as they're up, but it helps other people find us if they're looking for Star Trek book podcasts. And another thing that helps in that direction is leaving us a star rating and a written review. We really want to hear what you think of all the shows and literary treks in particular. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, 
and most other third-party apps, and you can also stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special Patreon's website, Patreon Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. And we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook, and that's for all the shows on the Trek FM network. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter, at TrekFM, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as our current reading section that shows you what's coming up for future shows. So check that out. We have great conversations in the group. I just put a poll up there recently, which I'll tell you real quick. We had, at the point of this recording... 34 votes, and the question was, how many Star Trek books do you usually read in a month? And 41% said that it varies. Sometimes they read one, sometimes none in a month. But the majority of people uh, read, in our group, at least one Star Trek book each month. Uh, We had 32.4% say they read one to two a month, and 26.5% say they read three to four. So... A lot of people reading Star Trek books. So join us in the Goodreads group. Just uh, search for Literary Treks in the search field on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shea Matala for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not yelling at Riker and telling him that everything is his fault, where can people find you? Darn Riker, he's... Just in the way, I just want to beam down and lead an away team. Good lord. Well, I'll be, uh, you can find me on facebook.com slash Productions. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. I'm on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, which I've already said. And you can also find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47, where I'm not taking pictures of alien vistas because, again, that jerk just won't let me beam down. Now, Bruce, when you're not stealing a shuttlecraft to see if you actually have a soul, where can we find you? I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex on Twitter, and you can also find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars, of course, with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference on Facebook. Well, that being said, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.